You're listening to an irreverent podcast. For more unholy content from our friends, head to irreverent.fm. Hey friends, welcome to the Speaking in Church podcast. It's your girl Josie here with my new friend, Jalen Alian. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Oh my God, thank God. I great. I know I just asked, but I still, this mind is not what it is anymore, what it used to be. All right, well, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So you said that your friend recommended me. Wow, word of mouth. Yes, uh, so a good friend of mine, I kind of so you know how these things kind of work when you meet people online especially in the deconstruction atmosphere mm-hmm. and some of them you know but you don't really know but you kind of run into each other in the same circle so a good friend of mine Daniel actually he heard about my story a little bit about my story because when he looked at my social media and saw my last few social media posts about my journey from the church and my thoughts. And he was like, hey, so there's a really cool deconstruction podcast you should listen to. And he's, they're always looking for extra speakers. And I'm like, huh, well, people say I've got the voice for a podcast and I should already do my own. So I guess this is a way to start. That's a little trial run. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thank you, Daniel Munez. Yeah. Daniel. I love Daniel. Uh, all right. Uh, Daniel was just on the pod. Well, I'm excited. We, uh, I don't know if you've listened yet, but we do start off the pod by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their testimony and their life story, you know, all those triggering okay. words. <laughs> tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> well, here's like similar says, part of overcoming trauma is being able to laugh at it so (laughs) um if I could condense the story as much as possible so we can get to the really juicy stuff but I guess my story the bottom of my deconstruction story really starts with a good friend of mine that I met five years ago named Elliot (laughs) and so I had always kind of known I was queer or a little different so we can go back even further um I was part of a bunch of religious groups and atmospheres at around 18 17 18 and I guess what got me involved is they gave me community Mm. which is something that I never really felt like I had growing up and then I had this internal struggle I finally came to terms with it around 18 or 19, but never could really tell anybody. And fast forward, there were really good groups that I was a part of when I was in college. But as far as an affirming gay Christian, I didn't really know about anybody else like me. And so now we're skipping ahead past a lot of the really dark parts because most of y'all probably know about that. But when I was 23, 24, I did what most gays do, especially gays in the progressive affirming area, is I found a guy on Facebook and added him because he was hot. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and like, and for anyone who's listening, oh, don't even like you've never done it. Um, don't even. <laughs> and but on his profile, he had a rainbow cross on his profile, and I was like, huh, Ooh, this is different, sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is, and he had a few other pictures. I remember seeing one that specifically said he was wearing a shirt that said, God is proud of me. And he had a rainbow flag as a cape at the same time. And another sign that said, I am not a contradiction. Mm. Mm. So then we started talking a bit more and talking about his experience and everything. And eventually he friend zoned me, but something inside me just said stay friends with him and that was the best decision i ever made um i decided to stay friends with him and right after that this was also around the time i lost my second job oh no (laughs) it was not a good year (laughs) no and he dumped all of these resources onto me first there was justin lee after Justin Lee, then there was Nadia Bolt Weber, then mm. Rachel Evans, then she rest in peace, um, Elizabeth Edmond, and many, 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 many others. And from there, I had never heard any progressive theologians, particularly those who were queer. And I started doing more digging and more diving down the rabbit hole. And I came to this uncomfortable but yet relieving truth i was lied to Mm. so now what and then i guess where i am now is i went to a qcf conference for the first time Uh, in case your readers don't know that that's q christian fellowship which used to be gay christian network had this life-changing experience met some of my greatest friends right now who i still talk to to this day my best friend Micah, who I love dearly, shout, shout out to you listening. Um, <laughs> he is many things. He's also a priest himself and an Orthodox priest at that, and many other things. So, and that's where I am now, trying to piece together what do I believe now and after spending so much time just realizing, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Well, what do I believe now? <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, ugh, deconstruction, especially for those of us who are not straight, um, is quite a journey because, yeah, you have all these messages that you are inundated with your whole life. is like gay people are bad, gay people are bad, they're sinners. And now it's evolved into the whole... Um, love the sinner, hate the sinner, whatever bullshit. Um, although I feel like it's going back to the fuck gay people rapidly. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, which I actually said this once in my, uh, in one of my group chats I was a part of his, we were following like a lot of us, of course, we're all very politically active and plus living in the DC area, most of us are. <laughs> and they were asking how are evangelicals supporting this and I said one of my many brutally honest truths because evangelicals and let me be very careful on the term I'm using here I'm talking about conservative evangelicals not Mm. everyone who's technically in the guise of that because conservative evangelicals have really kind of taken over that word too Mm -hmm. 
but that particular demographic of people don't actually believe what they believe. Mm. It's all about power and control for them. And for context, like if they truly did care about things like abortion, then they would have never stood behind a candidate like Herschel Walker. I mean, sure. Donald Trump, they could find six ways to Sunday to try to justify <laughs> their positions and their beliefs. But here you have a candidate who did what he did. The evidence is there. <laughs> and he's lying about it. And you're still voting for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cognitive dissonance is um overwhelming. Overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But we were talking a little bit about, um, before the podcast about how your favorite has been Rachel Held Evans, rest in peace. Yes. Tell me some of the, like the biggest sticking points where you were just like, oh my gosh, what the, like that, what the fuck moment <laughs> or moments. Wow. There have been so many, but a few that stick out in my mind is one where she says, Jesus talked about a lot of things. But what he rarely talked about was the church. And I was like, huh? But then I took a moment to digest it and was like, that actually does make sense. Because um, the church, as we knew it at the time, didn't exist as we knew it. What he did talk about more than anything was the kingdom, mm. but not a physical kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, and one that wouldn't be spread through conquering and colonialism and imperialism but a kingdom that will be spread by declaring his name producing his acts of love and preaching the message of hope and liberation about god that he spread what we got instead was the church mm -hmm. <laughs> and with any movement that has its intentions it there's the intention and then there's the result. And those two things often don't match up, particularly when you're, when you extend the movement out over hundreds or over a thousand plus years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, conservatives want to think that they're part of the original church, but there's no way that it's possible that throughout these 2000 plus years that the church did not evolve with the culture. Exactly. I mean, you use PowerPoint, you use projectors, you use light shows. I think it has evolved, you know? <laughs> you know, or even the, the conservative preachers who say, who are like Sheldon's mother from the Big Bang Theory, mm. you start changing the words to prayer. Next thing you know, you find yourself in a church with a guitar. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it's, uh, that's funny. I'm like... <laughs> having a moment because I'm just rewatching all of the Big Bang Theory right now. <laughs> so it's like, oh my gosh, the universe is so small. <laughs> and she does trigger me a little bit. She does activate my feelings, but it's funny. I lost my train of thought. That's great. Um, Rachel Held Evans. So now that you are, so I, I feel like a lot of people read these books and listen to like not listen to because you're reading it but they take in the, the, the words from the people who mm -hmm. seem to have been more farther along than we are how do you feel about all that now that you're a little bit further removed from 
the breaking point? Definitely a lot more hopeful, I'd say. And so I have this discussion with one of my, again, Micah, who I mentioned earlier, was one of my best friends. And like he, his upbringing was a lot different because he, being a seminary student and a lot of this, he's like, I had access to so much of this information and this discussion early on, like way before it became mainstream. And it's funny how we relate to each other because I say, I always feel like I'm so late to the party. And he says, funny, sometimes I feel like I'm too early to the party. Mm. So, but he says, the truth is you're right on time and you're right where you need to be whenever you are. Um, yeah. I know one thing Rachel also discusses that was really hopeful to me was how she describes marriage and how she described how my friends would also describe these moments or these experiences of spiritual awakening that we have now. Um, a glimpse of the mystery of only for a moment. Mm. Um, we, there have still been those brief moments of community, of fellowship, of love, and a closer reflection of the divine, you'd say. Um, I had those before, when I was in the evangelical circles, but it never really felt as authentic, I guess, because you're holding back a core part of your identity that you are told and trained to think is wrong. Mm. But now having embraced that and now having found community that embraces that part of you is a whole new realm of experience. And it again reminds me of what Rachel talked about in one of her poems. And she describes not just marriage of this, but I believe it could apply to so many other experiences a glimpse of the mystery, if only for a moment. Mm. And how I understand it is there's so many things we don't know as Christians or even atheists. There's so many things we don't know. And one of the biggest mysteries is how, one, what happens after we die? And two, how is it all going to come together at the end, as we're promised in our belief? And the truth is, we really don't know how it happens. Mm. But marriage and an Orthodox tradition, I didn't know this, is considered a small glimpse at how that process comes together. Um, that's why they have the two crowns. The crowns represent something, a small kingdom that could be something like the larger spiritual kingdom to come in the final days or in the future or whenever moments like this could also be experienced when i'm going to conference when i'm amongst my people mm. when i discover something new that i hadn't thought of before it's a small glimpse of the mystery if only for a moment and our closest earthly understanding of how it all is going to come together mm. mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like when I was in the evangelical church that they this concept of like finding divinity everywhere was not really I mean, they told us like, oh, the trees will like announce the presence mm -hmm. of God or whatever, but they never taught 
me the divinity of community like they said you should be in community and you should have people holding you accountable and blah blah all that bullshit but once i stepped away and i was able to see all the people around me for who they were love them exactly as they were not trying to change them not trying to convert them i have these moments of such profound mystery like you're talking about when i'm hanging out with people who love me and whom i love unconditionally knowing that we didn't get that before and now we are able to build that together yeah it's it's that thing you it's hard to describe unless you haven't unless you've experienced it for yourself i mean another thing it reminds me of is what again my good friend micah wrote in his thesis while we can't always be sure where the church is we can't definitively say where it isn't mm. And so wow, Schrodinger's cat over here. <laughs> exactly, right? That's why see, love that man. And I've experienced that truth myself. Let's just say without I don't want to get too graphic or whatever. <laughs> My friends know these stories, but let's just say there have been certain communities and certain events I've been a part of. And <laughs> or let's just say at a gay bar per se mm. with one so and these are kind of funny stories when i get drunk my past will usually come out and usually my experiences about these do and <laughs> i told them about the beginning of my deconstruction and sometimes they'll see the cross around my neck and then they get really curious about it and then they start asking questions and i'm no expert i just talk about what I know and what I've experienced mm. you know the stories I've had the people I've met in fact there's another online friend I have who goes by the name of Miss Penny Cost who does drag ministry They're like that's a thing uh yeah you have to talk to them about it but if you follow their Instagram and TikTok you'll get the gist of it but yes that that's a thing that they have created and I think it's awesome preaching mm. the word of God through drag. Amen. <laughs> and they always ask me <laughs> in my drunken stupor, so wait, are you a theologian? Are you are seminarians like and I always say, Oh hell no. Oh <laughs> hell no. Exactly. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I, I'm just a nerd. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is just my story. And when I tell Micah about this, he's like, I tell him this and he brings that this idea that we don't always know where the church is but we can't definitively say where it is and we're like but i'm not a preacher i'm not a do you have to be a preacher to spread the word of god according to the bible no mm. do you have to have a degree no i mean you have a testimony right well yes <laughs> they, they received the word of god um well, did they hear it? Were they receptive? Did they ask questions? Were they curious about it? Yeah. Mm. Then I'd say you brought some spiritual truth. Your experience and your testimony is spiritual truth. And I'm like, so are you telling me <laughs> that I preached the word of God at a gay bar when I was drunk? Mm. I mean, what did I tell you? We can't always be sure where it is, but we can't definitively say where it isn't. And is God so limited that he can't get involved or get penetrated in these type of areas? Mm. Uh, anyway. 
I love that because I, I feel like I came up against something similar when at my church they wanted me to start preaching and I was like oh first of all I'm a goddamn lunatic um I <laughs> I'm not certain I can make it through a 15 minute sermon which is a Methodist you know so we're short and sweet um 15 minute sermon without saying fuck like how am I supposed to not curse and then I was like I who am I to tell my friends and my community what the fuck to believe or whatever right and then the pastor was like well that's not always what it's about sometimes it's just about telling your story sometimes it's just about offering a different perspective and like you said i may not be a pastor but i can i can spew out some jesus you know right like i was just gonna say like pastors is a job right like i feel like if you want to be a pastor it's less so about you preaching and this is probably controversial but I feel like being a pastor is less about preaching and more about the spiritual care aspect. You know what Mm. I'm saying? Like the pastor is a person you go to that has gone to seminary, that has like gotten the training to, not that they should be your therapist, everybody, unless you don't have access, (laughs) you know? Okay. Anyways, but they're the ones that are like, you're supposed to be able to go wrestle your big questions with. Right. And not to say that we can't do that, but they're just like the, the person whose job that is. (laughs) It's not my job, but. (laughs) Absolutely. It's the difference between a priest versus a pastor. Mm -hmm. And I always thought those two were the same. And they are. There's some overlap and they are and they aren't. I always forget the differences. But one of those is, yes, exactly what you described. They're Mm -hmm. just supposed to preach. And the other one is more of a care type role. Mm -hmm. And it also reminds me of another thing Rachel said in her book, Searching for Sunday. Like. Jesus has this odd way of having the unexpected speak on his behalf. Mm. When she was talking about her baptism, and I thought about this too, when I wanted to be rebaptized with my new beliefs and my new belief system, whatever that may be. And usually most denominations are pretty strict about that, not because they don't want to, but because an act of God cannot be undone or redone. And as she would say, and I quote, as much as I wanted to be part of a new denomination where they vote for Democrats, support female preachers, and believe in evolution, I can't do that. But Jesus has this odd thing where he allows ordinary screwed up people to introduce him. So ordinary screwed up people (laughs) introduced me to Jesus and first called me Christian. Mm. And that doesn't change. Even us, even though we may not feel the most qualified, he has this habit of letting the least qualified and the most ordinary screwed up people speak on his behalf and tell his story through their experience. Mm. Oh my gosh, I just became physically enraged, not mentally or emotionally, but physically because this reminds me of my dad my dad and I always have these fucking arguments about religion because he's a very religious man. Uh, grew up in the church with him. And he is very intelligent, but he's the kind that doesn't want to get it wrong. You know what I'm saying? And <laughs> one day we were just driving and he it was Thanksgiving. I remember this and it'll come back. But he was saying like, if nobody's going to take you seriously if you have a potty mouth, essentially. And I was like, what do you mean nobody's gonna take me fucking seriously if like, <laughs> <laughs> like 
Like, I'm pretty smart. I'm pretty, like, empathetic. Like, what do you mean nobody's going to take me seriously? And then the whole gender thing, right, is like, why? Because I'm a woman? And he was serious, and he would not back down. And uh, it was relevant that it was Thanksgiving because he tries to buy my love with food because the way to my heart is through my stomach because I am secretly a male on the inside, I believe. Um, and he couldn't. Yeah, but I was so drawn back by that. And then now looking back, I have a platform to all my five fans. Holla, love you forever. Um, and I'm like, wow, people have taken me seriously. I entered a church community, not changing any aspect of myself. You'll hear me like cursing, like slipping up F-bomb in the sanctuary on Sunday because that's just the way I talk. And they take me seriously. And I, well, sometimes I don't know what to do with that. And then other right. times I'm like, my dad is just, was just wrong. Like <laughs> you, and like you said, Jesus did, he used all types, especially women, right? Like he used the women to preach about him. He, they were the first ones to claim the resurrection. And it's just, yeah, I don't understand how these people read the book and get it so wrong. <laughs> well, it, so there's a few reasons that I think and a few theories I have on that. So number one, let me try to convince this. Number one, this is why I don't subscribe to biblical inerrancy anymore. Amen. <clears throat> Not just biblical inerrancy, and for anybody watching who's unfamiliar, biblical inerrancy being the idea that the Bible is this inerrant and infallible document and that everything that it says is completely true, even when it contradicts itself. Now, turns out, as I've gone further into deconstruction, not just the Bible, but with also politics and other beliefs, I call it textual supremacy. I don't like the idea that anything that's written in stone can't be questioned, or this idea that, well, it's that way because so-and-so document says so and you can't question it it's just because it says so so just stop complaining about it and just accept it yeah to me that's a weak and pathetic argument amen all right and we're compromising all the time for views and values that we support and that we don't support and i could go all day about that but back to the original point I think it's because a lot of people are afraid to abandon what they only know and what they've always, always known. And then there's that fear of, well, if that's wrong, then what else is wrong? What else are they going to have to compromise on that they may be wrong? Who's to say that there are other things in the Bible, other things in our belief that are also wrong? Who's to say? that we are believing all in a lie and one old friend that i don't really talk to anymore who's a lot more in the conservative uh, evangelical world than me he says this has nothing to do with sex it's about the authority of scripture and the authority of scripture and preserving that is more important than sexuality or aborted babies in so many ways i'm paraphrasing here but that's what he was essentially saying um, which is crazy because the bible says that the most important thing is loving god and loving your neighbor exactly and a small story i have i always retell this story because and 
this is a little winded, but it'll all connect. But back when I was 17, I had to read this book in high school called The Metamorphosis. Oh, and- I love that book. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which is funny because at the time I hated it. So that li- I mean, it's creepy. It's weird. <laughs> it's, it's very creepy and it's very weird. And for context for anybody listening, it's a book by Franz Kafka, which is where you get the word Kafka esque from. Mm-hmm. Strange, surreal, absurd, out of the ordinary. And it's about a man who wakes up and finds himself in bed, formed into some kind of giant bug, or at least that's what. Is implied. More that, yeah. It's implied. <laughs> anyway, so I hated the book. All right. <laughs> At the time I did. And the whole point of this story is is he actually a giant bug? Or did the main character, Gregor, Gregor Samsa, wake up one day and realize, yeah, my life is shit. Mm. <laughs> so, and the author, Kafka, never makes it explicitly clear and this is one of the reasons he didn't want the story illustrated he never makes it explicitly clear and if you read the original uh edition first edition that was published in which is what i read the first line of the book says awakened by unsettling dreams he found himself transformed into a monstrous vermin now the word vermin loosely translated at the time means someone or something mistreated among society and when the word took on a different meaning was i want to say around the 40s or 50s i'd have to double check the dates but it was when the pest industry became a thing and they Mm -hmm. started adopting that word more often and now we associate that word with pests and so we spent like a whole month in high school debating over whether gregor is actually a bug or is it all just some weird metaphor and me and my immature 17 year old mind was thinking it doesn't fucking matter <laughs> right it doesn't matter but now i understand the message that my teacher was trying to hone in that he was really trying to get us to understand what we did at the end of that of this session before we moved on to another book was he had us do an exercise where we saw different editions of the first page of the book. You had a great now, teacher. <laughs> 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 and he had us compare them across each edition across the last couple of decades. And some of them, they all had some slight iterations that were change. But what was really important was how some of them changed the wording of that very first sentence. Awakened by unsettling dreams, Gregor found himself transformed into a monstrous vermin but one edition i read said a kind of a giant bug Mm. which is if you read the newest edition is what it actually says or formed into some form of bug formed into a giant bug Mm -hmm. now when we had that word put in there our teacher asked us now seeing these editions how does this change how you view the story It changes everything. And a lot of people, particularly those who subscribe to biblical inerrancy, who believe in textual supremacy, and this is why I call it that, because I have the same problem with the Constitution, who believe words matter. And if you change one word, particularly when that word involves spiritual truth, moral ambiguity, or many of the topics we deal with in Christianity, 
you aren't just changing a word. You are changing an entire meaning or a purpose of what a story had to have. And how many times have we done that through each translation or mm. each revision or each version that we've had of the Bible? And let's be honest, how many versions of the Bible do we have now? Too many. <laughs> so that was my story on that. I mean, as a as a book fiend, I'm obsessed with this example because it's so relevant, right? I actually just had a guy at Pride who came up because I had a booth for our church um, who came up with a camera and a mic and was like, you know, accosting. I was like, how can you justify being here if you're a church, a pride, blah, blah, blah. And part of the conversation, he was like talking about like, you don't believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. And I was like, no. And then he was like, well, uh, and then I brought up the original language. Like we had a similar conversation that we just had. And he was saying like, well, I always have my Hebrew Bible on me at all times. And I was like, so you read Hebrew? And he's like, no, but it has the the word for word translation on the other side. And I was like, but that doesn't change the fact that you don't know what the fuck the Hebrew says. So that could be wrong. <laughs> like, how are you not understanding this? <laughs> you don't know what it says. And you're trusting and some rando to tell you. Yeah. And you add on top of that. I mean, this is another thing I didn't really know with language. And now, having lived overseas, having uh, had so many cultural experiences and seeing how language works, mm. there are so many words that we don't actually know what they mean in Hebrew because there's no direct way to translate them. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, going back to books again, this is why, and a lot of people don't know this, Harry Potter was the translator's nightmare. Mm -hmm. And even though J.K. Rowling is trash, but this, this is relevant and it applies, but Harry Potter was the translator's nightmare. And it's not just Harry Potter, it's any type of fiction book or fantasy book where you have words that are made up mm -hmm. and there's literally no way to translate them into other languages. And Harry Potter had so many passages like this. Yeah, how are you <laughs> supposed to like translate Horcrux? Like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Just to make up a word. <laughs> it's a make, made up word. And it's, and then when you go into not just other languages that not only have their own language, but they have their own alphabet, like there's no way to mm. really, I don't know if there's a way you can translate that to Russian or if there's a way you can translate that into Chinese or what version of Chinese are we talking about? Yeah. Traditional, Mandarin, Cantonese. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I feel like this is, one of the major downfalls of most Americans is not being cultured because yes, I mean, I grew up, Spanish is my first language. I grew up in a household of immigrants. So I grew up in a Mexican household and mm -hmm. then learning American ways in school. And then my school was diverse. So then I had Filipino friends and I had Korean friends and I had black friends and I had all these friends who interacted with me. And so even when I was in my deepest Christian, I never got to full conservatism because I couldn't, I could not reconcile yeah. this American religion to the lives of people who were not traditionally American. Exactly. Like I've always known the translation issues because 
speaking two languages is fucking rough sometimes. <laughs> but also pretty badass. Yeah. Or like I moved to a, a not move, but I traveled to all these countries and they live such different lives and I'm expecting them to adhere to this narrow view of Christian living that the Americans have deemed appropriate. Like I remember my parents not like in in Mexico where they're from, if you're Christian you don't drink, generally. Now people are getting a little more progressive. <laughs> But we had an Argentinian pastor come to the church once and we went out to eat afterwards and they're drinking beer and everybody was scandalized. And this guy was like, that's your Christianity in Argentina. We we drink. I don't know what you're talking about. It's crazy. <laughs> but yeah, I'd hate to say that. I always say that the wor- all the world's problems would be solved with just a little bit of education and cultural education is the one we generally forget about especially in christianity oh yeah i think another big problem with that i think it's american culture in general is not just undereducated but they don't know how to do critical research and it's hard to have these discussions and disagree without being disagreeable which points to a deeper problem within american culture itself i think and I think one of the reasons why, I mean, I'm no expert, but one of the ways I guess I've become a little immune to it is I was a liberal at a progressive liberal school where people were either to the left of me, but I spent a lot of time in those conservative circles because I was primarily in those Christian environments because what do you do when you go to college and you feel a little lonely? You try to find your people. And that's where mm-hmm. I found solace in the past. And so I spent a lot of time around conservatives who had these beliefs and having to hash them out. It's like going into a boxing ring. We put on our gloves, we throw some punches at each other. And at the end, we shake hands. Mm-hmm. And what did we learn from this experience after getting out of your comfort zone? I think a lot of Americans, it's a lost art and it's a dying art, knowing how to engage with the other side Mm. and knowing how to do that without making it personal. I agree. I also, I mean, I went to a Christian university, so pretty much fucking everybody was conservative, but all of my best friends were also conservative. And I mean, some of them have stayed and I've converted quite a few (laughs) through love (laughs) and acceptance. (laughs) We love that. But um, my my best friends like to say that I, do you know the Enneagram by any chance? Yes. So I'm an eight and a big thing with eights is conflict is intimacy. And oh my God, do I love a good fight. <laughs> I love to argue and I can, like, I just am that person. Um, and they had to, they say like, we had to learn how to not get mad at you when you were talking about this kind of shit. But yeah, I have found talking about divinity again, I have found lots of divinity with people who are conservative. Like I'm not the kind of leftist that is like, fuck everybody to the right of me. Um, (laughs) And it's like, I know iron sharpens iron is not supposed to be like two different, whatever. But I feel like, yeah, I feel sharpened by people who are willing to engage these conversations with me. Because part of having an open mind is being open to being wrong, even if you're pretty sure that you're not wrong. (laughs) I'm never certain that I'm not wrong. (laughs) 
Right. It's amazing some of the things you learn and how you're able to get people to reconsider things. In fact, like a, two years ago, I had, or about a year and a half ago, actually, I had a conversation with one of my more conservative friends, but moderately conservative friends who went to the church that I've kind of left now. <laughs> Another story. But really nice guy. Loved him. I mean, I loved being a part of something. He always made me feel welcome in the Bible study I was a part of. You know, I also think maybe being a little bit younger and part of that younger demographic may have also helped a bit too, but mm -hmm. another conversation. But we had a serious discussion over abortion. Mm. And I think a lot of people, what they respect, typically on the right, if they are consistent conservatives they respect the they respect the facts mm -hmm. and i told him listen dude if you're against abortion here's what you're signing up for and i have experience in public health like here's what's going to happen mm -hmm. and this isn't just my words this this is the past this is what we saw happen before abortion was legal and i'm telling you this not just from my opinion but this is what i know to be true yeah, these are the then, numbers, the facts, the figures. The numbers, the facts. And then he was like, at the end of that, he was like, huh, I, I guess I never thought of that. <laughs> most Americans and most people in these type of roles, they don't. Yeah. In fact, side note here, this is why Judge Katandi Brown-Jackson, love her, she's one of my heroes here, and first Black female justice on the Supreme mm -hmm. Court. We love the representation, but one of the best things about having her on that court is she is the first public defender. Mm. And the reason that's important is typically justices have a theoretical approach to the law. And when they make an argument, they'll say, well, here's how the law is supposed to be applied. But she will be the first one with firsthand knowledge and experience that will say, yes, but here's how it's actually going to be applied. Yeah, you can't always theorize humanity, homies. Exactly. <clears throat> no. I know. I feel I feel bad for people who are pro-life, honestly, because it's just <laughs> <laughs> you're just not engaging with the information, but also like I have to I I find myself trying to have empathy for the fact that these people truly believe that they're killing a baby. <laughs> and then you look at like the have you seen those pictures that were published in the New York Times recently where it's like, this is what a six week pregnancy actually looks like. It's just like mm -hmm. a fuzzy little thing, like a little mm -hmm. circle. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know how you look at that and think, oh, that's a human child. And I should ruin the life of a human for the sake of this cell. How I convince more of them is you have to understand to them, first of all, we got to stop saying my body, my choice, mm. because to them in their mind, this other being, it doesn't matter if it's only right after, right after sex happens, if it's a week, if it's six weeks or four weeks, to them, it doesn't matter. It's still a human being. It's still a life and it has rights. Mm -hmm. So what I challenge them on is if you're going to say this is a human being that has rights then you can't pick and choose when it does and doesn't have rights. Mm. And two, this 
this isn't about just preserving a body or someone letting someone do what they can and can't do with their body. This is about the right to make a life and death decision. Mm. And we make these decisions all the time, particularly in medicine, and we have mm. rights about those things, right? Anytime where you have a decision on who decides to pull the plug, if no DNR was cited, or if you have someone that's in a coma, or if you, if the doctors tell you that maybe you have twins and we can't save both lives, mm. and then you're left with trying to figure out, do you choose one life over the other? You hope to God you never have to make these decisions and it's never easy. But what we have always consistently said is it is your right and it is your privacy no matter what choice you decide. Mm. It is between you and your healthcare provider and between your family. Mm. Like, and it's not as black and white as, as they seem to believe it is. Or maybe you have a four-year-old kid who's in a coma and the doctors tell you this kid is probably not going to wake up mm. or would it be right for the government to say we don't care if it's only a one percent chance you're going to preserve that life at all costs and if you don't then we're going to charge you for murder mm. it is about the right to make a life and death decision and that right is yours it's not the governments it's not the churches it's especially not the churches to tell you what you can and cannot do and what's already a very difficult decision. Yeah, I mean, this kind of reminds me of a Grey's Anatomy episode for the pop culture people, um, where these two people were impaled on the pole facing yes. each other. You see this, you see this. And they can't save them both for whatever reason, or maybe, the, I don't remember, but they have to save one person. And it's sad because it's like an older man versus like a younger hot girl. And the young hot girl is has such injuries that she will not survive no matter what. But if they try to save them both, they're both going to die. Or they can just go and save the one guy. And it's like this huge moment. But it's also like the girl has this realization. Because they're conscious during this whole situation, Prince. You should watch yep. this episode. It's very good. And she's like, well, essentially, like, no point in both of us dying. Like, And yeah. that's kind of... To me, as somebody with a uterus who cannot, I'm disabled, so I cannot be pregnant. I mean, I probably wouldn't die, but I don't want to live like that. And that's exactly. just as valid. It's, yeah. uh, it's a rough, rough road. And I think that's part of the discussion that needs to have. You've got to show people where these decisions are not as black and white in the world isn't as black and white as you think it is. In fact, mm. this is why, well, I kind of still like watching this channel. If you watch anything by Jubilee mm -hmm. on YouTube, and they always have the middle ground episodes. Yeah. So the last few episodes they've had have gotten a little intense and they don't choose the best representation on both sides. But still, the whole point is they're trying to show you is that people are not as black and white as you think they are. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more middle ground than we like to admit. In fact, one of my favorite but most touching episodes, and it seems a little corny, but it was still emotional and still great, but they did Israelis versus Palestinians. Oh. And, oh, yes. And I am still 
I'm not an expert in that whatsoever. There are layers upon layers upon mm. layers to that conflict, and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on any of it. <laughs> but I love how at the very end of that entire episode, the last question was, I would sit down and have a meal with anybody sitting in this room. And they all started laughing and they all came to the center and laughing at each other. And then they brought in tables and brought in music and then they brought in Israeli food and Palestinian food and they all shared a meal together. Mm. <laughs> like, I love that. <laughs> that is just so what I wish would happen, right? Like, uh, I feel like society's issues get so internalized by us all. And I am so guilty, right? Like, I feel it all. I feel, especially as like a news junkie, oh my God, do I feel, and I have opinions and I get angry. But then part of being a Christian in the Jesus sense of the word is me having to face the fact that one, I could be wrong. And two, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong because their humanity is still just as divine as mine. Yeah. And I have to, if I, I have to lead them towards empathy, whatever that looks like for them, all I can do is try to lead them towards love and empathy. God loves them too. Mm-hmm. Even if we don't want to admit it, God loves them too. Yep. And this is something I try to wrestle with, not just as the bridge builder, because apparently that's my personality, but. Oh, same. It's such a burden. <laughs> it, 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 it's. People don't understand the burden that we have. Do you think it's easy trying to find the humanity and the love? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it froze. They're not going away. Yeah. So we got to figure out a way to live together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like... I often tell people, my conservative friends who like to argue with me, I was like, I believe that we both want utopia. We just have the, we just have two very different paths on how we want to get there and how we think that we can get there. Um, But we both, we're all striving for a better world. Um, Just not one where Christian nationalism is in charge of my life. Cause then that's when my hypocrisy is going to come out and then I'm going to get a gun and then all the leftists are going to get guns. All right. Like you want a militia, (laughs) we're going to start the gayest militia in the world. Okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You want it? Like I'm a martial arts instructor and I'm like you, I tell all of my friends, if your life and your physical safety or anything is in danger, you have the divine right to protect yourself from Mm -hmm. anybody especially those who declare god's name in vain Mm -hmm. to protect yourself and everyone you love yep i've already warned my friend i have some friends in the fbi god bless my soul um um fuck the police but also love you i I was like, if this shit goes down, if these Christians keep getting all crazy up in this bitch, you better believe I'm going to get arrested and I need you to pull some strings. All right. Like this is, (laughs) that is your reparations to us all. FBI. What did Dolly Parton say? Like Dolly Parton's like, oh, I always have my own way of doing things because she's best friends with Jane Fonda. Who's always getting arrested. Like, did you hear get Jane arrested? And she was laughing. Oh, look at that. Wait, she got arrested again? Oh, again? What for this time? 
exactly. Yeah, that's a perfect example, right? Like two very different women. They're friends. I'm sure they don't all align politically because, you know, Dolly Parton grew up in the South. But they both are changing the world in very concrete ways, very yes. differently. It takes all of us in our own uniqueness to change the world together. I didn't want to share if, I don't know if we're, we have time here, but. Oh, we have time. Don't worry. I don't have no so... set times. <laughs> but I wrote about this actually. And I can't take complete credit because I was really inspired by Senator Margaret Chase Smith, if you know mm -hmm. who she is. So I was really inspired by her Declaration of Conscience speech and the first woman to serve in both the House and Senate. Mm -hmm. And at a time when everyone was so afraid to stand up to Senator Joseph McCarthy. And out of all the men in that chamber, she was the only woman, pun intended, who had the balls to mm. stand up to him and call mm. him out by name. And she did it so eloquently and so graciously to the point where she is more than just a footnote in American history. In fact, I don't think she gets enough credit for mm -hmm. that little moment that we had and her words still ring true today. So I thought, I went to a Christian retreat, actually, a queer Christian retreat a few years ago, right after the pandemic. And they needed one more person to speak and no one else would do it. And so, <laughs> well, as always with God pushing you into things that you're not ready for, I was like, well, I have one little piece here. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't finished it, but I guess... I can already hear saying, God, good, now's your time. <laughs> mm, finish it. <laughs> okay, fine. But I started it months ago and I finished it like the day I was supposed to speak at it. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it would be amazing. What if you could take that speech and apply it to the church? Mm. Mm. So I have this thing here. I called it Declaration of Conscience, a Religious Revision. Oh my gosh, I'm so ready for this. To my fellow Christian brothers, sisters, and non-binary siblings, I'd like to speak about the issues of the current inner workings of American Christianity. These are issues not only plaguing the Christian community, but have a profound impact on the world and beyond, and could cause inconceivable damage for the future of all God's children. Firstly, let me be clear. I speak as a cisgender man. I speak as a queer person. I speak as a person of color. I speak as a believer. But mostly, I speak as a child of God. The Christian religion has gained worldwide respect as a large, one of the largest, most diverse, and most loving religions for countless centuries due to the emphasis it places on the values of forgiveness, compassion, grace, mercy, and love, the bedrock principles of the Christian faith. But as I examine these values among many others, I find so much of these values lacking amongst those who call themselves the true believers. Those of us who shout loudest about Christianity and our outspoken love of Jesus are often those of us who, by our own words and actions, ignore the basic commandments of Christianity. The command to love thy neighbor, the command to love thy enemy as thyself, and the simplest commandment, to love one another. 
And many of us who have walked the Christian lifestyle for many years have forgotten the basic rights any new believer is entitled to. The right to question, the right to wonder, the right to doubt. The exercise of these rights and the obedience of these simple principles should not exclude anyone from the Christian community, nor should any Christian be in danger of losing their community simply because they associate with someone who has anti-Christian values. Mm. Now ask yourselves in our walk with God, whether we're newly baptized or if we've walked this life for decades, who of us has not? Who of us has never questioned, never doubted, and who of us has never wondered at least once, what if everything we believe is all a lie? Questions like these can generate very strong diametrically opposed opinions. To any who wonder about the faith of those in doubting spaces, I would ask, what is belief? And who decides what is true belief? The answers to these questions are never simple. And we inevitably try to simplify these complex answers through vague dualistic thinking. As a Christian who understands the need for the authority of scripture, I don't want a watered down contorted gospel to twist it to fit my agenda. But as a believer who's experienced the pain of spiritual abuse, I don't want a literal black and white narrow-minded weaponized interpretation of scripture either. I would condemn a progressive Christian just as much as I would condemn a conservative Christian for slandering the word of God in any sense, however one may see fit. While leaders may not see the harm of their actions up close, history will tell us that the most vulnerable will suffer the most. As a queer person, I wonder about the next generation of queer brothers and sisters and non-binary siblings, all born in the image of Christ, being raised to hate themselves on fear-based theology. As a man, I worry about a whole community of men uncertain of where to place their identity as they're trained to believe in antiquated roles shrouded by toxic masculinity. As a person of color, I worry about my black and brown brothers and sisters and non-binary siblings, many of which struggling to make their voices heard as faith institutions routinely refuse to acknowledge their role and negligence of societal prejudices that have existed for decades. But as a believer overall, I'm disgusted at how well churches and denominations alike are playing into the toxic, cultish behaviors of manipulation, alienation, isolation, and fear. I don't want to see the next generation of believers saved this way, with the harmful toxic theology we all know too well. Too many Christians are sick and tired of being afraid to speak their minds lest they find themselves colloquially smeared as the lukewarm. If we don't reverse course now, I worry about the current trajectory of Taka's theology and that it will drive us further and further away from Christ and closer and closer into a cult. But it doesn't have to be this way. We can be the life-giving community that Christ intended us to be. We can be the light in the dying world and we can truly be the life changers that God destined us to be. It may seem impossible and often intimidating but with any great story that's been told in the Bible, God never leaves his people with nothing. Those of us who've experienced the pain and trauma of spiritual abuse will be able to bring the revolution of rebirth and healing the church so desperately needs. But it starts with us. It starts with us being willing to use our experience to help those like us. And it starts with us being able to respond with love. Make no mistake. 
I'm not saying to forget our pain. I'm not saying to accept abuse as reality, and I'm certainly not excusing the harmful theology that's harmed all of us. But what I am saying is that saving the oppressed is just as essential as the righteous anger we have the divine right to express. Not just for the future of the church, not just for our God-given callings, but specifically for the next generation, specifically for the young kids sitting in the pews, hearing the messages we grew up with, and just as lost and confused as we were. We can choose to be angry, and we definitely have the right to be. But more importantly, we can choose to be better. We can choose love. Mm. Mm. What a great way to end the podcast is all I'm saying. <laughs> Dang. Mic drop. Thank you so much. I love it. Oh, that was so good. Well, you got anything to plug while you're here? <laughs> um, well, I guess I may start writing again because I started a blog a while ago and then I took it down. But I've been told my friends say you should write again. Mm. So most likely I will keep using the same note, which is on my Instagram, Christian and author underscore Chalen and the cliffhangers footnote as my blog post. So if ever and whenever I start writing again, I'll be posting from that. I mean, I think you should. <laughs> I agree with your <laughs> friends. You should write. <laughs> and if you need some publishers, let me know. I got some hookups. So. Oh, well, thank um, you very much. I might have to keep that in mind. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. If you ever want to come back, let me know. Open invite. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, especially when you write that book. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, friends, as always, you can find us on Speaking at Church on Instagram. You can find me at Josie Takes the World. Um, we have a tip jar, uh, buy me coffee on my Instagram. It's a free show, but you know, you gotta make a living. Ryan uh, is desperate for financial security in the recession. What a loser. Ugh, my partner. <laughs> Who needs <Yay>. that? Capitalism. <laughs> I know. He's just not used to being poor. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Okay, friends, um, other than that, as always, stay woke or get woke. Bye! Bye. This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.